Father, we thank you for the testimonies of every person in this place that could truly say that you were in this house. And Lord, we are now about to experience that as we open your word. And we pray, Lord, for a clarity of mind and an openness of heart to receive the revelation that you want to give to us. Lord, give us an openness, especially with a subject like this. And give us a willingness to trust that this is your word. This is not man's idea or opinion, but this is pure scripture. And we pray, Lord, for the power of the Holy Spirit to assist the delivery of this message so that man would not be exalted, but Christ would. We glorify you in this place. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Please turn your Bibles to Galatians chapter 6. Galatians chapter 6. And please meet me at verse 6 of chapter 6. We are coming nearer and nearer to the end of the series in the book of Galatians. And up to this point, we've been discussing the Christian mandate of bearing burdens. We all have our unique burden to bear. Every single one of us has our own respective responsibilities. All of us have a unique calling given by God that we must fulfill faithfully. That is true. We will all stand at the judgment seat of Christ and give an account to how we've lived our lives for him. But the Christian mandate of bearing burdens is not limited to us individually. We learn that it is actually a call to bearing one another's burdens. That we've been commanded by Christ to look at one another and to identify heavy loads and seasons of weightiness and to come alongside each other and to help carry that load And one of the ways in which we've learned how a Christian can bear the load of another Christian is according to this context, which is what? How to restore someone who has fallen into sin. That's identified as bearing a burden. You know why? Because that's not an easy task. To restore a fallen brother is heavy work. Strenuous. We have to pray. We have to counsel. It it requires time. It requires energy. It requires patience. It is no light thing to come alongside a broken brother or sister and try to restore them to wholeness again. But Paul now wants to introduce another way how we can bear each other's burdens. Paul now wants to shine light onto another way that we can come and assist another believer in their walk with the Lord. And I have to be honest. This text, this verse especially, must be very awkward for any preacher to preach on. And the reason being is because Paul now is going to explain how the people of God can help bear the burden of those who have been assigned to teach the word of God over their lives. Because teachers and preachers have burdens too. And Paul has this in mind. As an apostolic leader, he's going to come in the authority of the Holy Spirit To speak not to the teachers necessarily, but to those who are being taught the word of God. To make sure that they don't miss on this angle or this element of the household of faith, which is those who teach the word of God in their lives. And so we read in verse 6, in light of his teaching on bearing burdens. Let the one who is taught the word share all good things with the one who teaches. So he's speaking to an audience that is in the position of receiving and hearing the word of God being declared into their hearts. 
And the instruction here is very simple, that the needs of a minister should be considered and met by some measure from those who are benefiting through his spiritual investment. You can see why it's awkward, right? But it's scripture, and we want to embrace it with humility and openness. Paul is not sharing this insight in this place alone. Paul, in fact, teaches this truth throughout the Bible. And right before the book of Galatians, we have the book of Corinthians, 2nd and 1st. But in 1st Corinthians 9, 11, read this with me. Paul says, if we have sown spiritual things among you, is it too much if we reap material things from you? 1 Corinthians 9.11. Then he scrolls down into verse 14 and he says, In the same way the Lord commanded that those who proclaim the gospel should get their living by the gospel. And what Paul does in this context is that he goes into a historical teaching where he, he points back to the temple in the Old Testament and how the priest would eat of the sacrifice, how they, they were benefiting and they were receiving aid from their very own source of work. But interestingly enough, Paul in 1 Corinthians 9 teaches and gives instruction about the rights of a minister, but he himself in that chapter, that's not his main focus as much as it is to say that as a leader, as a teacher, he himself says, I don't exercise that right. So what he's saying is, I have the right that if I'm sowing spiritual things into the congregation, that I would reap some material things. But what he wants to say is, though that is my right, I do not pull out that card. And the reason being is Paul, in his own conviction and with his authority decides not to receive any financial or material benefit from those that he is speaking to lest they be hindered in receiving the gospel in other words the reason why Paul had this conviction is that he didn't want any obstacle any hurdle to be in the hearts of the people that they would assume that maybe he has a false motive as a pioneer to introduce the gospel. So he removes all of that. He, he, he puts down his right to say, I'm more concerned about you receiving this truth, even at the expense of my own right, as I labor among you. And I was reading this and studying this and thinking to myself, well, how do we reconcile these two principles? I mean, Paul says, follow me as I follow Christ. And yet at the same time, in the next breath, he goes, if you preach the gospel full-time, if you teach the word of God full-time, you should get your living from that work. And I think it's the best way to understand it in this. Generally, one who has dedicated his life to full-time ministry in preaching and teaching the word of God should receive his compensation for that work. But that minister should be so open and so longing for hearts to receive the message more than anything, that he must prayerfully and be sensitive to the Holy Spirit enough that if an opportunity arises for him to preach at the expense of his right being exercised, he should do so for the sake of the message. In other words, there might be situations where a minister for a season of time would lay down that right for the good of the people. There might be an opportunity that when a preacher comes to a specific audience, he must prayerfully consider and assess who he is speaking to and make that decision to lay aside that right for the sake of the purity of the message to be delivered in fullness of power concerning the receiving of it. 
And so it is a circumstantial thing, I believe, for a minister to know when to exercise that right and when not to exercise that right. And Paul says here in verse 6 of Galatians, Let the one who is taught the word share all good things. This is not limited to financial aid. This is open to all types of aid. When he says, let him share all good things, the instruction here implies that those who are being taught should extend any type of aid to the one who teaches so that the task of teaching would be more effective and would be more manageable lest the teaching ministry of a local church suffers. Do you know why Paul is giving this instruction in Galatians 6.6? Because he has a high value concerning the word of God being taught. Paul's concern as an apostle is the word of the Lord being expounded upon, being deposited, being explained and heralded. And he's concerned that that ministry would suffer for something as simple as a man or or a minister not being able to carry that load because he's carrying another load on top of that. In essence, what Paul's saying is that the people of God in the household of faith should be able to identify the burden of a preacher or a teacher and to at any rate and this is not limited to financial but come alongside to make sure that the burden of preaching and teaching is met with full energy on the preacher's side because preaching and teaching is a burden on its own in fact Paul identifies that in another text in 1 Timothy 5 would you turn your Bibles there verse 17 and 18 Paul gives instruction to Pastor Tim. And he says here in verse 17 of chapter 5 of 1 Timothy. He says, Let the elders who rule be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who labor in preaching and teaching. For the scripture says, You shall not muzzle an ox when it treads out the grain, and the laborer deserves his wages. Let's look at this text real closely. He says, let the elders, and elder is a synonymous term for pastor. Elder, bishop, overseer, pastor, they all mean the same thing. And he's saying here, let the elders who rule well. So notice, it's not just rule, but ruling well. To rule means to oversee, to organize, to lead, to supervise, This is what Paul has in mind, that these people who are responsible according to Hebrews to watch over, listen, not just whether a person attends, to watch over the wellness of the souls of the people. Let them be considered worthy of double honor. And then Paul has something else in mind though, very specific. He goes, especially especially those who labor in preaching and teaching. Now the word labor means work to the point of exhaustion. It means a taxing and it means an investing to the point where it is bone-tired exhaustion. Who labor in preaching and teaching. Preaching and teaching, if it is done faithfully, is laborsome work. Does anybody in here dread writing an essay? 
that's like preparing a sermon. It's almost like preparing a sermon because you are digging into the word of God. And not only are you digging into the word of God, you are comparing scripture with scripture. And, and it's not just taking out text. You want to make sure that you're interpreting it right. And the, the weight there is not just so that the people receive it in truth, so that I'm faithful before my ultimate judge that will be held accountable for. Every message that a preacher preaches will be brought to light. And not just whether it was interpretedly and divided rightly, but the motive behind it. And so there is a layer upon layer in which a true minister of the word of God, what he has in mind is how can I feed my sheep? What is it that they need to hear in this season? How can I take a text and make sure that it is clarified and it is received in complete understanding, freedom from confusion? See, the preacher and teacher, what he does is he supplements interpretation to your own reading. And what he wants to do is make sure that if there's any confusion or fogginess, he would bring about the right interpretation for his people. Now think about the responsibility of that. Because if there's any confusion concerning a portion of doctrine, guess who's going to be held responsible for leading the people to believe a specific interpretation? The preacher. And if the preacher really wants to tap into the Holy Spirit's leading, he's not just going to spend his time and his hours studying books and studying the scriptures. He is going to get on his face before God. And he's going to ask the Lord if, if this is the right text for this week. And if this is what is on God's heart for the specific context. And if this is the right word for the right season. And he's going to ask for the power of the Holy Spirit to make sure that the word is not delivered in dullness. Void of power and void of passion. He's going to seek for an empowerment from on high to make sure that he disappears and that Christ is seen and adored and loved. The preacher's job is to make sure that every text, every sermon, every study would bring the hearts of the people closer to their bridegroom. He is the friend of the bridegroom that rejoices over the voice of the bridegroom. He wants to step out of the way and he wants to make sure that the people come closer to Christ. And remember, the preacher and the teacher is not divorced from the ruling. And so the preacher and the teacher is not just preparing. There's visitations. There's councils throughout the week. There's calls in the middle of the night. There are emergency situations that would take him away from certain things that he has to focus on. And I pray that you're not hearing this coming from me, trying to put a pity party or trying to make people feel guilty. I'm just speaking from the authority of the word of God. Pretend that I'm not a preacher and just hear the word of God this morning. It's laborsome work. This is what Paul is trying to say. And then he goes to scripture to bring backing to what he's trying to say. He goes, for the scripture says you shall not muzzle an ox when it treads out the grain. Now he goes to a specific law in the Old Testament that deals with how the Israelites should treat the animals. And he goes, the ox, when the ox treads the ground, when it comes and, and it breaks up the earth and it is preparing something for you to benefit from, don't shut his mouth lest he can't eat from his own work. Don't muzzle the ox. Let the, let the ox, while he works, be able to eat from his very own work. As you are trusting for him to provide for you, let him benefit from his own labor as well. And so Paul appeals to a text about how we should treat the animals in the Old Testament. And what he's trying to say is, if God is concerned about the well-being of an animal, 
Surely he is concerned about the well-being of those who teach the word of God. Who is likened to an ox who comes to the word and digs and pulls out and makes clear and makes moist those scriptures for the people to receive food from. But he doesn't just appeal to the Old Testament. He says here, and, so he's still in the line of argument of scripture. He goes, and the laborer deserves his wages. And this is quoted from Luke chapter 10 verse 7. When Jesus sends out the disciples to go and preach, Jesus says, when you go to a house, eat and drink from that house. For labor deserves his wages. So what Jesus had in mind is even when you go out and you preach in an evangelistic mission, if somebody gives you food, that's okay. If somebody gives you a house to live in, that's fine. If somebody wants to give you drink to replenish yourself, the laborer deserves his because it's labor. Side note, you know why I love this text? In 1 Timothy 5, 17 to 18, I love this text because Paul quotes from the Old Testament known as Scripture, but he also quotes the book of Luke and equates it to Old Testament authoritative Scripture. Do you know what that means? That in 1 Timothy, the book of Luke was already in circulation. The book of Luke was already recorded and passed alongside and recognized by the early church as Scripture. And so Luke is known and is on the same level as the authority of the Old Testament in Paul's mind, and more importantly, according to the Holy Spirit. Side note. And so he says here, the laborer deserves his wages. And this is here, by no means, encouraging for a minister to take advantage of such a command and such an instruction to be able to feed his greed or to be able to somehow bleed the sheep for some kind of extravagance or to be lavished upon with unnecessary material blessings by abusing such a text. Because in 1 Timothy 3.3, it says that an overseer should not be a lover of money. So that is covered before 1 Timothy 5.17 and 18 comes up. If you're an overseer, you should not even love money to begin with. When he quotes Luke 10.7, Jesus said... If you eat and drink, you're receiving that, receive it as a wage for your labor. And you know what Jesus is saying there? The necessities of life. The things that contribute to the, to the things that every human deserves to have in order to be able to live healthy and to live a normal life. He's not speaking of over-the-top extravagance and, and showering people unnecessarily with things that don't even contribute to his necessities. He's just simply saying... Let the wages be met concerning his labor so that his work is not divided from preparing from the word of God so that he can provide for his family and provide for his children, provide for his wife. Paul has in mind that the word of God is so important that if anybody's going to be dedicated to preaching it full time, that he would have the time to do so faithfully and in the power of the spirit. And so when we come to Galatians 6.6, 6, this is how Paul is saying is another way the church can bear the burdens of one another. But throughout the Bible, we see here as we continue in these verses, we see, don't we, laws given by God. Clear-cut commands in Scripture that pertain to our behavior, that pertain to how we ought to live as the people of God. But when you and I hear the word laws concerning mandates given by God, they are not limited to do's and don'ts in the Bible. There are laws instituted by God 
that don't necessarily directly deal with how we should do and not do certain things. What I mean by laws is this, that there are certain universal rules established by God that determine how life can be experienced for all men based on specific decisions that they make. God has set laws that apply to all people and that determine, based on how they respond to specific decisions, how they will experience life. For example, here's a simple illustration. Anybody here heard of the law of gravity? If you haven't heard about it, you can get up and jump now and see how it works. What goes up must come down. It doesn't matter if you are righteous or if you are wicked. If you choose to climb up this roof tonight and you jump off, you're coming down. The law of gravity doesn't apply to some and for others it doesn't apply to. You and I can't do anything to cancel that law. You and I can't do anything to alter that law as long as we're in the earth. It's a law. What goes up must come down. And there are laws in the Bible that God has given that operate in the same way. And one of those laws that God has granted to all men that apply to all people is the laws we're going to read of sowing and reaping. Whatever a man sows, that he will also reap. Let me make this clear. It cannot be changed. It cannot be canceled from my life. It is binding on all men. And based on how I respond to this law of sowing and reaping will determine how I experience life. And so look what he says here in verse 7. Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever one sows, that he will also reap. For the one who sows to his own flesh will reap from the flesh corruption. But the one who sows to the Spirit will from the Spirit reap eternal life. And let us not grow weary of doing good. For in due season we will reap if we do not give What is the law of sowing and reaping? It is very simple. Whatever I invest certain resources into, my time, my energy, my practice, I can expect to receive something back for that investment. It's very simple. If I take a seed, like an apple seed, and I plant it into the ground, I can expect that in due season, I'm going to get some apples that applies to oranges, that applies to all these fruits and vegetables. Whatever I put in, I'm going to receive something in return. And he says here in verse 7, don't be deceived about that. God is not mocked. You can't do anything to change it. And what he simply wants to say is this, because what has Paul been teaching up to this point? Walking in the Spirit. Giving yourself, the warning of giving yourself over to the desires of the flesh. Bearing one another's burdens. And what Paul wants to say up to this point after teaching on very practical Christianity, he says this. He goes, listen, let's make it plain and simple. He wants to let us know that all of our actions have consequences. All of them. Every deed has a consequence behind it. And the more you invest into that deed, the more you will reap a result from it. God will not be mocked. In other words, nobody can ever say, I can do something for a certain period of time and not reap the consequences of it. Because many people do. Many people snuff their nose at God. Many people wink at the idea that God, 
God is actually going to do something about how I'm living? God is actually going to repay me for how I am living in this way? Absolutely. And you'll be shocked to know how he'll do it. It's a law. It applies to every person. It cannot change. But according to this context, I believe Paul has three things in mind concerning the law of sowing and reaping. He has three specific things in mind of how we can rightly apply this law to our lives lest we reap the negative aspect of it. Three things, according to this context. Number one, the investment of our resources. Number two, the investment of our personal holiness. And number three, the investment of our good works. The investment of our resources. Remember that Paul just finished talking about what? Sharing all good things in the household of faith with those who minister. And the ministries that you are benefiting from, he's saying, share in all good things. But how does sowing and reaping apply to this? I know that this portion of teaching makes people a lot, uh, really nervous. And the reason why is because there's been a gross perversion of the idea of giving in the body of Christ. I'm fully aware of that. And there are those who have taken even the language of sowing and reaping and have applied it to make people give certain amounts of money to a specific ministry for nothing short of selfish gain. And just like any doctrine... Many people who want to remain faithful to the word of God become reactionary to certain perverse doctrines, right? So there are many people who say that certain acts and certain manifestations are of the Holy Spirit. And what do we do as a reaction? We go the other way and we enter into another extreme, which we deny the power of the Holy Spirit almost altogether. And then we come into the teaching of giving and people get squirmish and people get nervous. And I understand because I'm one of those people as well. But when I read the Bible, like in this text, and in the text we're about to go into, I cannot help to deny that Paul, a holiness preacher, Paul, a gospel preacher, was a man who actually taught on giving in the body of Christ. And so my personal prayer, even not just for this morning, but in general is, Lord, help me not... Rob your word of the authority it carries because some people have carried it too far. How does the law of sowing and reaping apply to this? Does it mean that I give a certain amount of money and I'm going to receive greater amounts of money back? Because that's how it is usually applied. You give with the motivation that you're going to get back. And we apply that in the physical. If I plant an apple seed, there's no knowing how many apples I'm going to get from one little seed. So you plant this amount of money and there's no knowing how much you will reap. Hundredfold, tenfold, fiftyfold, whatever it may be from the preacher apparently knows how much you're going to get back. But what's unique about this type of investment of sowing and reaping in the body of Christ concerning aiding in a material way for ministry to continue is that when we sow materially, we don't necessarily reap materially. When we sow materially, we reap spiritually. In other words, my material investment into a ministry does not mean I will reap more material. It means that I am making a contribution to spiritual harvests. When I invest into a ministry that blesses me spiritually, I'm ensuring that that ministry will continue to bless people spiritually as practical needs are met that will allow them to do so. In fact, I would encourage you to turn your Bibles to this important text. It's in 2 Corinthians 9. It's just right behind the book of Galatians. Chapter 9 of 2 Corinthians, verses 12 to 14. 
Paul speaks in this chapter about giving. And he gives a lot of detail of what giving can do. In verse 12, look what he says. I want to pull certain points out of this text. For the ministry of this service, so he's talking about the ministry of giving, financially. For the ministry of this service is not only supplying the needs of the saints, but is also overflowing in many thanksgivings to God. Number one, when we give financially, we do the awesome work of meeting the practical needs of people. He's saying here, this ministry of service is not only supplying the needs of the saints. Now here's the context. Paul is speaking to the Corinthians. And the reason why he's speaking to the Corinthians about giving is because there's another church in Jerusalem that's a large church, but according to Romans 15, is very poor. The church in Jerusalem was suffering, and there was many people suffering. So Paul was extending and inviting other churches to contribute a financial gift that would benefit the practical needs of the church in Jerusalem. This is the context. And he is trying to stir their hearts in this ministry of giving by giving out these points. He's saying, listen, when you give, you're meeting the needs of people. You're giving them the, the basic necessities of life. But he doesn't stop there. In the second part of verse 12, he says, you're not just giving the needs of the saints, but also overflowing in many thanksgivings to God. Corinthian church, when you give, you know what you're actually doing? You're contributing to the heart of worship of the people in Jerusalem. You're giving the saints in another church a reason to look up to God and to overflow and to burst out in praise because they recognize that you in your giving are an extension of God's blessings in a very practical way. So Paul relates giving and the reception of a gift and points it back to God receiving worship and praise. The giver is the means of the blessing and the receiver is the worshiper to the one who is given through his hands and feet known as the body of Christ. He's saying you're giving people a reason to worship God more extravagantly and powerfully and consistently. Verse 13, by their approval of this service, they will glorify God because of your submission that comes from your confession of the gospel of Christ. That's convicting. This is Bible. This is Bible. This is not my opinion. This is Bible. This is Paul inspired by the Holy Spirit. And he's saying here, they'll glorify God because they see your submission that comes from your confession of the gospel and the generosity of your contribution for them and for all others. What he's trying to say is this. Giving is a way in which a professing Christian proves his value and his belief in the value of the gospel. My contribution into a ministry that proclaims the gospel proves to some measure how much I actually value and believe that this message needs to go out. And so a heart that submits to this act of giving is a heart that confesses through that act that I believe this gospel and I believe it needs to move forward. I believe that it needs to be maintained. I believe that it needs to reach as many people as possible. And if money is going to help with that, then let's do it. 
But not only that, a giving heart is a heart that understands the gospel. Because the gospel has everything to do with giving. For God so loved the world that he gave. And Paul says in another place that Jesus, though he was rich, gave himself up so that we would become rich. He became poor so that we would become wealthy in the spirit. Then he says something in verse 14 of 2 Corinthians 9. While they long for you and pray for you because of the surpassing grace of God upon you, this gift of giving from the Corinthians would actually prompt the saints in Jerusalem to actually pray for them as a response. To make them an object of intercession in their own lives because there's a partnership that's been developed in that very act of extending immaterial help. Not only that, he says that they will long for you. Now there's this knitting of hearts to see that a partnership has been established simply by I see the need and I will make that need to my best of my ability. And the response is, oh, we long for you and we're going to pray for you for helping us with that need. So Paul is just bullet pointing, jabbing at the hearts of the Corinthians with these different reasons for them to get motivated and excited about something as giving. There's something he says in chapter 8 of 2 Corinthians, verse 7, that was even extra convicting on top of what he's already said. Look at this verse in, in, in chapter 8, verse 7 of 2 Corinthians. He's speaking to the same audience, and he says this. But as you excel in everything, listen to what he's saying. Read it very slowly. He's speaking to the Corinthian church, and he's saying, as you excel in everything. You know what that means? That they are operating in the realm of excellence in the things that he's about to say. In faith, in speech, in knowledge, in all earnestness, and in our love for you. What is he trying to say? You Corinthian church, you excel in faith. You trust God in your salvation. You trust God in your sanctification. You trust God for your present circumstances. You trust God for your future circumstances. You are excelling in faith. Not just in faith, but in speech. You have gifted people who are able to articulate the gospel of Jesus Christ. You have preachers and teachers who know how to expound the word of God in deep ways. In knowledge. Some of you guys know how to break up the Bible. Some of you have an expertise on the terrain of scripture. You excel in knowledge. You excel in earnestness. There is a zeal and a passion that seems to remain consistent in the various ministries that you are subjected to. And in love. Your love for us and our love for you. There seems to be this communal heartbeat for one another that is on par. That is in a place of, again, excellence. Then he uses that to say this final thing. As you excel in these things, see that you excel in this act of grace also. What act of grace? He's talking about giving. I'll be honest. This was convicting. Because personally, I pray for a lot of things. Lord, I want to excel in my faith. I want to excel in my knowledge. I want to excel in my speech. I want to excel in my passion and my zeal. But giving? Lord, I want to excel in giving. 
And we might think to ourselves, well, everybody has a different gift. And it's true that there are some who have a gift, an ability to give with a heart that is cheerful and it's more difficult for others. But I thought to myself in this way, imagine that these different strengths or these different wonderful things of gifts and acts were displayed like a body and you see the the muscle of faith and it's excelling and you see the muscle of of speech and it's excelling and you see the the muscle of love and it's there and all for a sudden you come to one muscle and it's it's giving but it's it's weak it's it's scrawny it's lacking proportion and I believe what Paul is trying to say here is that if you want to be complete and you want to be whole Don't excuse yourself, but ask God for the same grace that you're asking for these other things so you would be complete in your service to the Lord. Ask God to make you excel in this gift as well. Ask God to make you excel in this practice as well so that we would all the more reflect Jesus Christ who gave himself up. I join you in the conviction. I join you with that sting as well. It is not an easy thing to hear, but is an invitation to a greater walk with the Lord. Investment into resources, with our resources. But number two, we come to verse 8 of Galatians 6. The investment into our personal holiness. Look what he says. For the one who sows to his own flesh will from the flesh reap corruption. But the one who sows to the Spirit will from the Spirit reap eternal life. Very simple, isn't it? If I give myself to any of the acts that Paul described in chapter 5, 19 to 21, if I entertain, if I invest my time, my energy, my mind, my thoughts, my words, my ears, my eyes to these things, there is one definite result no matter how much I think I can manage my sin, and it is this, corruption. I will eventually rot to the core Any moral conviction will decay over time if I continue to sow into the flesh. There's no way around it. I can't just expect to do these things and experience nothing. I will ultimately be polluted. It's a law, guys. It's a law. But the attention and investment given to the Spirit, I can expect results as well I will know something of life now and life eternal when I give myself over to the spirit and investing into it what I love about the spirit is this the spirit is like soil think of the spirit like soil it is not my job to produce fruit I treat my relationship with the Holy Spirit like I would with a garden. I plant into the garden, and from the garden, fruit will come out. I invest in my relationship with the Holy Spirit. I spend time with Him. I sit at His feet. I come to the Word of God and asking for His help. I speak to Him throughout the day. As I invest into the soil known as the Spirit, He will do his part like the garden in my backyard will do and bring out the necessary fruit in due time. Very simple. To just remember, we don't chase after the fruit. We chase after the relationship that will produce the fruit. 
I don't chase after love. I don't chase after patience. I don't chase after gentleness and faithfulness. I will wear myself out. I take all that energy, all that focus. I come to the Spirit of God and I let Him generate that work in me and I will trust that I will have more fruit than I can ever imagine. It makes it a lot more enjoyable, trust me. Many believers evaluate their own lives and they go, well, I lack love and I lack patience, so I'm going to try to be more patient. I'm going to be more loving. You're putting the cart before the horse. Go back to the soil. Plant into the soil. Invest in your relationship with the Holy Spirit and watch how he'll bring the fruit in your life that you and I are so eager to experience. Lastly, the investment of our good works. Look what he says here in verse 9. And... He said, I have one more thing to touch on concerning this law of sowing and reaping. And let us not grow weary of doing good for in due season we will reap if we do not give up. One more thing Paul wants to say and that's your good works. He spoke about our investment into resources. He spoke about our investment to our personal holiness. Now he's speaking about the investment that you and I have given into the ministries that God has called you for. The investment that you have placed in your life concerning other people that you are trying to touch. He goes, listen, I'm very, very, very aware of how this thing called good works can get very, very, very tiresome. It, be, it can become weary. It can become very discouraging. Do you know how Paul can testify to this? Do you know why he can say, let us not give up? Because Paul in this entire letter is dealing with a people that he has led to the Lord that are now drifting away. Paul himself knows the pain, that patience that is required when you deal with other people. And how you feel like you've invested so much time, so much prayer, so much counsel, so much writing, so much waiting. And now the very people that I led to Christ are being deceived into another doctrine and I got to keep investing and keep sowing into them. Paul is speaking from experience here. So he goes, let us not grow weary of doing good. What he's trying to say is this. As you sow into your ministry, I want you to see that as soil as well. I want you to see it as a bed of soil. And it's going to require you to plant. It's going to require you to water. It's going to require you to watch. It's going to require you to protect from birds. All these different things. And what Paul is trying to say is, don't stop. Because in due season, it's going to come. In due season, you will experience it. What does due season mean? In God's perfect time. In God's perfect timing is the fruit going to come. And the only thing that will cancel the experience of the investment into a specific ministry is what he says at the end. If we do not give up, don't walk away from the bed of soil that you have invested into. Don't turn your back on it. He's saying that when it comes, you will be amazed and all the pain of investment will be eclipsed by the joy of bringing in the sheaves that you've wept for. You sow tears, you will reap a joy of harvest. You sow your time, you sow your energy into a soul, you will not walk away without a reward. It's going to come. 
It's going to happen. And I say that for this specific ministry this morning. A lot of people have dedicated their time and energy to pray, to sow, to speak to other people, to text others who have walked away, to study, to labor, to drive people sometimes an hour or two from where they live to bring them to church. And sometimes we don't see what we want to see. And we think to ourselves, maybe I should just stop and relax a little bit. Because up to this point, it doesn't seem like things are working the way I've been praying for. Hear the words of the Apostle Paul, who's speaking from great experience. Who in faith is writing this text to a people who he has sown into to trust, I'm going to get a reward for what I'm doing right here, right now. Something is going to come out of this. And I'm going to trust that it's going to happen in God's timing, and I'm going to rejoice when it does. But I'm not going to walk away from my ministry. Walk away into what? A normal life? Walk away into a, what? A life free from service and labor? Brothers and sisters, we live to labor for Christ. That's all you live for. Let me tell you the meaning of your life and mine. We live to labor for the kingdom of God. And we don't cry about it, and we don't complain about it. We rejoice at the fact that we can even serve him whether we see fruit or not. And so he turns it, and he says here in a positive sense in verse 10, So then, as we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone, and especially to those who are of the household of faith. Take any opportunity that is given to you to serve in good works. Whatever opportunity that you have in this life to sow a seed into somebody's heart, into somebody's ministry, do it. Because there's power in a seed. Because every time you invest, you have no knowledge how much you're going to reap. And maybe you might not even see it in your lifetime. But Paul is so confident in this law of sowing and reaping concerning good works. That he says whether it's a financial contribution into a ministry or whether it's your words speaking to a broken heart on a Thursday night. Whatever you choose to invest in, there is going to be this law implemented. Something is going to come out of it. So take on the opportunity that you have in this life to give. Don't be relaxant. Don't hold back. Don't let doubt cloud it. Don't come to a place of fear, of worrying, of giving yourself over to something, not knowing that something's going to come out. There is a law set in the heavens. If you sow, you will reap. And Paul gives a priority though. He says, especially to those who are in the household of faith. Especially those who are in the household of faith. In other words, when there is a need in the body of Christ, it takes priority in our lives concerning our resources. And I'm not talking just physical. Our time, our energy. We have to balance scripture with scripture. Your, your number one ministry and mine is our immediate family is our immediate family. We are called to take care of the needs of our immediate family. 1 Timothy 5, 8 says, if anybody denies that, they are worse than an unbeliever and they have denied the faith. That's a serious offense. But the church, the household of God, what we have to understand from this is, is simply that. You and I should look at each other like family. We are bonded by the Spirit of God. We are knitted together by His blood. And we have a responsibility to take care of one another. And that's a priority in our lives. I think of a, an example of something that I just heard from a minister. 
It was Dave Wilkerson who ran Teen Challenge, if you're familiar with that ministry. And Dave Wilkerson shared a testimony in which he had a tract, and they had tracts back then in which they would uh, hand out to apparent drug addicts on the street. And it was simply this, do you want to be cured from your addiction? And he gave that tract to an individual who was addicted to heavy drugs, and that individual put it in his overall pockets. And this individual walked away. Dave Wilkerson hadn't seen him in years. And one day, into his office, steps into this man with that tract in his hand and sits down and says, I was, I was compelled to come here because I found this tract that you gave to me four years ago. It was in one of my pockets. I threw those overalls in some corner of my closet. One day, I went to fish out for some clothes, and I found out those very same overalls. Whether he wore those more than once or not, I'm not sure. But that, on that particular day, he wore them, and he went into his pocket to reach for change to buy another fix of heroin. And what he pulled out was that tract. And he came to receive healing from that rehab center. One tract from four years ago. One little seed. And I put it into the ground, and I don't know if it's going to come up in a week. I don't know if it's going to come up in five months. I don't know if it's going to come up in four years. But when we sow, we will reap. Turn to Hebrews very quickly, and then one more text, and then we close. Hebrews chapter 6, concerning what Paul just said. The author of Hebrews agrees with him. Hebrews chapter 6, verse 10. For God is not unjust so as to overlook your work and the love that you have shown for his name in serving the saints as you still do. God is not unjust. He records every single time that you have given something. Every single time that you've given your time, your energy, your resources, financially, whatever it is, there is somebody who is keeping books there's somebody who's recording every single penny, every single minute, every single time you've spent gas. Whatever it is, God is keeping record of it. I think we're all going to be shocked. I, I, I guarantee it when we realize how much God has really kept in touch with our lives. And I believe when we get there, and I hope that I don't feel this way, that many will though feel that they wish that they could have done more when they realize that God was keeping watch. And there's this one text, a lot of Bible this morning, but one more text that equally convicted me with this idea of giving. And we close with this one, I assure you. It's back in 2 Corinthians 8, 3 and 4. Paul, again, is speaking to the Corinthians. And what is he trying to do? Provoke them in this ministry of giving. And you know what he does? He points to the Macedonian church. And he's speaking about how the Macedonian church prepared a gift for the saints in Jerusalem. But look how he describes it. I mean, you think about excel in giving. You related to this verse, and, and really this was my personal prayer when I read about the Macedonian church. I, I asked, I said, Lord, I want that same attitude. I want that same attitude. I don't want to cringe. I don't want to, I don't want to hold tight to my wallet. I don't want to hold tight to my resources. Look what it says. For they gave according to their means. As I can testify, and beyond their means, and of their own free will. That's the best kind of giving. The best kind of giving is when it's out of your own free will. Now, this is the part that convicted me. Begging us earnestly for the favor of taking part in the relief of the saints. 
When it comes to giving, usually we have to be begged into it. But the Macedonian church begged Paul to be a part of it. I thought to myself, when was the last time I personally, remember the preacher rule, whenever one point, fingers point at you, there's three pointing back at the preacher. When was the last time I begged to give? When was the last time that I knew there was a need? I am not in favor, nor do I advocate blind giving. I do not believe in that. I believe that when a person should give, they should know what they're giving into. And then leave the rest up to God of how the people who handle that money will be judged according to that. They knew the Macedonians need help. And they go, Macedonians, we have an opportunity to relieve the saints. And the reason why they begged earnestly was because they were not in a place to give in terms of their own resources. But they begged Paul. They said, Paul, please, please, just take what we can give you. We want to contribute to this. We love what you're doing with the Macedonians. Can you just take it from us? I don't know how the conversation went, but maybe it went this way. No, it's fine. There are other churches that have much more resources. We can go to them. No, Paul, please. We really want to. Just take what we can give you. We really want to give so that we can, we can be a part of that ministry. Whatever we can contribute, Lord, we, we want to do it. I read that and I go, faith, speech, knowledge, earnestness. Giving, I don't know about that. But I come to a text like this, and I see that it's possible for me to see it as a ministry and to see it as an opportunity to advance the kingdom of God. When you sow, you will reap. Whether it's the investment of your resources, the investment into your personal holiness. Can I ask a simple question as we close? Are you giving enough to the Holy Spirit to work with, to produce something in your life? Are you giving enough to the, the Holy... I mean, we expect what? I expect fruit and vegetables to come out of a garden, but I don't plant into it. I don't water it. I don't provide light for it. And just do it. Come on, produce something. Oh, no? Okay. And all the while, we're sowing into the flesh, and we wonder why this, this spirit is not producing what we're asking for. Am I giving enough to the Holy Spirit to work with? And lastly, investment into my good works. I pray that we would not grow weary of doing good. If anything, I pray for this church context that there would be a fresh wind of faith as we transition into the next chapter to believe that God has way more than we ever expect. In fact, to believe that everything that we've prayed for, everything that we sweated for, everything that we believe God for, we will begin to see it on the horizon and see it and experience it and praise God for it. Let's pray together. Lord, our one prayer is simply this, that you would drain out all fear and all false views of this concept of giving in, in Christianity. Lord, drain it all out. In each of us, Lord, teach us how to excel, not just in things that we want to excel in, but the things that you call us to excel in. And we pray, Lord, that as a body, we would value the gospel enough to say whatever I can give to it, whether it's my resources, my time, my gifts. I want to sow. I want to sow and trust that it will have a contribution to a harvest. And so, Lord, right now,
We simply sit into what we've heard. And we ask that you would infuse in us the faith. Infuse in us the wanting and the free will to do what we, you called us to do. Lord, I pray that nobody in here would feel like this was a message for a bigger offering. Or this was a message to do more uh, in a guilty way. But Lord, may it all be what 2 Corinthians 9 teaches. For the sake of you being glorified. Let that be the motive every single time. Let us be wise and to know how we do it and how much to do it with. But Lord, let us also, at the same time, be consumed with what the Macedonians were consumed with. A longing to contribute to any relief for the sake of the gospel to remain strong in the land. Receive our praise and worship this morning, Lord. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.